we may or may not have this as a distant memory, but right now we're emerging from a pretty significant snowstorm in Seattle in which uh, at first it was like, oh, how pleasant, lots of snow. You know, at that first day, it's a, it was like, was it Super Bowl Sunday a couple weeks ago? And yes. Yeah. I remember seeing Steph was fluttering and I was in Leshai, which if you live here, you know, is a very steep neighborhood. And I was beginning to think I shouldn't stay till the end of the game. <laughs> I need to leave now because I want to get home. Yeah. And so that, you know, the first, you know, couple of days, it's like, oh, this is kind of quaint and blah, blah. blah. And then it, it just, it, and it always happens this way. It just, it just gets worse and worse and worse. It, it impacts you worse and, you know, more and more. Um, so let's just briefly complain about the snow and then we'll talk about some psychology po- uh, podcast things. What do you say? Okay, I'm ready. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Karkonda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Rebecca? I'm Rebecca Bloom. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and a board-certified art therapist in South Seattle. So, yeah, for me, and I'm curious for what happened to you, is uh, right away, uh, you know, I, my clients couldn't make it. I work from home, so I was at my office but my clients couldn't make it to me. So I started doing some phone appointments, which isn't a big deal to me and also supervision. And then school was canceled at Antioch. (laughs) So I had to cancel classes, which I, which I did. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so that week was just kind of a wash. It was like, I just never left the house and um, just got a lot of stuff done at home and went for walks in the snow with the dog and, Everything was great. And then come the next Monday, it's still snowing and it's just piling up. And then I had to miss more clients and had to do more things over the phone. And then I had to miss another week of teaching, which, you know, if you miss one week, you can, you can push the snow day into what we call week 11 of the quarter. We're in a quarter system, which is a 10 week cycle and then we have three weeks off. And so I, if I have a snow day, I can push it to week 11. But if you have another snow week, you have to push into week 12, which is actually really unusual and for many people just not possible, um, considering that the grades are due at the end of week 12. And so you'd have to, so it's just this logistical problem. So I en- ended up doing class, or I was planning on doing class over video conference, over, ah. over Zoom, you know, a Skype like mm-hmm. thing. And then the power went out. A, <laughs> a tree fell and destroyed the power just on my block. Oh God! So <laughs> like, why, God, why? Yeah. In fact, <laughs> right across the street, people had power. You know, down oh. the, every everyone had power except for just us on this side of the street. So it wasn't even like our whole block. It was like just the houses on our side of the street between one street and another street. And so then, you know, the, the temperature starts to plummet in your house. Right. And yeah, there's nothing to do. And I'm just like, and the roads are so bad. Uh, so at one point I'm like, what, well, I've got to get work done and I've got to figure out a way to get to a place where they have internet access. So I can actually like hold class and I get in my car, which is a, a sports car, Honda, uh, a car. <laughs> and, and it's I true. proceed to, 
Yeah, I proceed to immediately get stuck in the snow. (laughs) And I'm trying to like dig myself out. And I'm and then I'm like, okay, well, I get the chains out and I'm trying to, you know, get the chains on, which I swear to God, the you you you've got to be like Einstein level genius to get (laughs) to get to get get chains on. I mean (laughs) I just don't understand. Twenty nineteen and I feel like I'm in the middle ages trying to you know, put a bridle on like 10 horses or something. <laughs> it, it just, just everything's tangled with, up with gloves on, right? No, no gloves. So that's, no gloves. that's the other thing. My hands are freezing. Mm-hmm. And then, um, some good Samaritan pulls over and says, well, I'll, I'll tow you out to the main street. Cause the main oh. street was generally okay. Well then we're like, okay, great. You know? And, I'm thanking him and we're starting to look, we're looking for a hook. You know, usually there's a little tow hook in the front of the car. Can't find it. Uh, we're, we're digging around in the car. We can't find any tow hook. It's a, if for those out, you know, maybe some, you know, car experts out there, it's a Honda Accord Sport, which is kind of a new model. And so maybe it doesn't have one. So, but the guy who pulled over, he, his brother is a car, is a car salesman on a Honda lot. And so he calls him. So we're sitting in the middle of the street, like problem solved. And I can't leave my car there because I'm in the middle of the street. Mm-hmm. Um, I finally kind of get one chain on one wheel. It's sort of halfway on there. And he's like, well, let's just try it. And so he gets behind me. He pushes me. We immediately get moving, which I was like, why didn't I try this earlier? And I'm like, thank God. So now I'm, I'm, I'm zooming down the street trying to find. You're an, not zooming. You're going 10 miles an hour. Right. Exactly. Well, I'm moving, you know, moving. and and then, and I can hear the chain, you know, kind of, you know, and I'm, and I'm thinking, okay, I, where can I pull over? Cause I don't really need the chain anymore, but everything off of the main street that's been plowed is like a complete snow ice wasteland, you know, like, cause you plow the, the snow and it just piles up in, you know, these other places. And so I'm worried if I pull over to deal with this chain on, on one wheel, I'm not going to be able to get out of the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And then the chain sound disappears. Just it, van- it, it just vanishes. And I'm like, Oh my God, what the hell? And so, but so then I'm like, and I'm looking in my rear view mirror trying to think, okay, when, when am I going to see the chain sort of pop out? And I don't see it. So it's I'm like, under the car. I'm like, is it stuck under the car? And then I, and I listen really closely and I can hear like this popping chain like slight noise and I'm like oh my god what have I done to my car and I I get to the stoplight and I you know put it in a park I jump out I look under the car and it's stuck on the axle oh god so but I can't access it and there's cars coming behind me so I get back in the car and I'm like okay where am I I need to pull over somewhere because if this chain gets caught in because the way they make wheels now, they have those aluminum, uh, you know, or those, I don't know how to call it, but there's, there's holes in the wheels now. <laughs> in the olden days, there was no hole in the wheels, you know, now because like if the chain gets through one of the spokes, essentially, of these wheels, like I could, comp- I could potentially like break my axle or completely destroy my my drum, my, you know, brake drums or something. I mean, it's just like, who knows what could happen. And then I'd really be screwed, right? Just like stuck in the middle of like highway 99. 
And um, long story short, well, long story long, I managed to get to a parking lot, pull out the thing while people are like looking at me like, what is wrong with this guy? Like, how did he get his chain stuck on his axle? Then I get to my destination and it starts to snow even more. And long story longer, my car is still where I left it. Like <laughs> now that things have kind of cleared up today, I've, I'm going to take an Uber to my car. <laughs> Thinking about getting your car back. If it's still there, you know what I mean? I don't even know. It's been, it's been a few days. But I did manage to hold class over, over Skype uh, or Zoom. Yeah. What, what about, and the, and the lights did go back on after, uh, but how about you? How have you been faring? Well, so, so school has been out for so long uh, that I think my child's brain is just mush at this point. But the funniest thing was, so, you know, a lot of us have friends that live alone and a lot of people were checking in and I have one friend in particular and I just kind of on an inkling as it started to snow the second time on Friday night, I said, do you want to come over? <laughs> like, uh, and she was like, yes, I'll be right over. So she stayed at our house for four days and we lived this new reality where we had this, another member to our house. And of course, lesbians will understand this. She brought all her own food for all of her food needs. And, um, there's, uh, is that a, is that a thing? That's a thing. There's a thing. We call it at our house, we call it the sensitive lesbians. Um, But let's just say lesbians really know themselves and their bodies really, really well. (laughs) And (laughs) you know all the things you're sensitive to and you can't tolerate. And uh, But of course, every lesbian has a different set of things, you know. So if you get a lot of lesbians together, there's a lot of time spent like, you know, well, I can't do corn. Well, I can do corn, but I can't do dairy. You know, and of course, everybody's eating completely organic. Um, so <laughs> we had this very amusing time. I'm so glad she was there because I think it stopped us all from killing each other. Like we had someone to be polite to <laughs> as opposed to like just screaming. Um, yeah, just a side note on that. It, when the Beatles were at the end of their relationship with each other, they were bickering a lot, which is documented in the documentary Let It Be which actually never became, you know, the rooftop concert, all that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And in the middle of, of recording, they invited the uh, keyboardist. Um, oh my God. I can't remember his name. An American, African-American guy. And God, I cannot believe I can't remember his name. God damn it. But anyway, <laughs> he joined the Beatles for a little bit and George Harrison, you know, years later was talking about how adding him to the mix uh, sort of, forced everyone to be polite with each other and they finally were able to get some work done. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's what happened to you guys. Yeah. I would highly recommend bringing in an extra person in your next snowstorm if you have a teenager in the house. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, my son, he made a hundred dollars shoveling snow over a couple of days. Like they had this whole thing worked out of like kind of wandering the neighborhood looking available and eventually someone would stop them and be like, can you shovel for us? Um, So the first few days he thought it was like the greatest thing ever. But then as the slush, so yesterday should have been a school day, at least for the older kids. 
um, Seattle Public Schools was closed yesterday and was a two-hour delay today. And I have a theory, which I'm testing out, which I believe it's mostly because the elementary schools are mostly on side streets. Um, the high schools and the, and the middle schools are mostly on main streets, and those kids could have gotten there. But that extra snow day when it was just slush, it's like there's no enjoying what's happening outside. Uh, and so, you know, it was just basically screen time. And then I started making masks. Um, and I now have like 20 masks. I can send you the link on uh, what's it called? Pinterest. But that's basically how I stayed sane. I just had the glue gun out and the bedazzler. And I was just, you know, had my little craft quarter. <laughs> What kind of masks? To- like this is like, this is me going crazy in the snow. This is also me going crazy. <laughs> in the snow. Well, I was there's a thing going on at my son's school. This kind of Mardi Gras themed thing, and so even though no one's asked me to make Mardi Gras themed masks, there's now twenty Mardi my, my version, my you know Jewish imagination of what a Mardi Gras themed mask would be. <laughs> um, but it was just really about like having something to do. Um, because man, I am, and I'm also not a cold weather person. You're not going to like get me out there in snowshoes. Um, so yeah, I start to get pretty loopy, um, just in terms of like wanting to do something different and not being able to do anything different. Yeah. Billy Preston, by the way, is his name. Billy Preston. Uh, Yeah. So now what I'm, what I immediately started finding was that all these transplants from outside Seattle who live in Seattle were posting on Facebook and other places making fun of us as we talked about snowmageddon and snowpocalypse and, you know, cause it was constantly on the news. Everyone's talking about snow on Facebook and everything. And, you know, people from say Minnesota or even Spokane, Washington are just laughing at us. It's like, Oh no, six inches of snow. And, the thing is that I'll say to all those idiots is <laughs> that in Spokane and in Minnesota, they have snow every single winter. So from, it's just a matter of how much and when it starts and when it melts, like every winter in Spokane and Minneapolis, from what I understand, there is a lot of snow. And so there is a infrastructure and everyone knows what to do because it happens every year. Uh, it's the same as like when it rains in LA, they all freak out. Not because, not because they're idiots, but because the drainage system isn't set up to handle the occasional big rain that they have. And people's car tires are sort of acclimated or used to the fact that, you know, the, they don't need that much traction. And in Seattle, we don't have, we don't allocate the tax dollars to infrastructure such as plows. We, I remember the last big snowstorm 10 years ago, at least I don't, this is rumored that Seattle had access to like two plows in the entire city. Um, and that we had to share one of them with Tacoma or something. And, uh, also Seattle is a city of hills. I would venture to say there isn't a single road in Seattle proper that isn't at least on some grade 
uh, everything. It's just a constant. Some and some hills are are intense. You know, intense hills. I mean, ten years ago, I remember that bus that like um crashed. <laughs> Like this bus over like, the freeway, right? It was uh, for those Matt, you know, just Google it. Like bus crash, I think Harrison Street it was on Capitol Hill. It it was like a Superman movie where the bus was halfway over this um, essentially cliff, and if it had gone fully over, it would have careened down. I don't know, like fifty feet onto the freeway, and um, and it stayed there for a long time because the trying to get it off of that situation was impossible given, given what, you know, we had available to us. Uh, Mayors have been fired or have been, have lost elections because of these occasional snows. We only get it like once every 10 years. And so anyone who like claims that Seattle people are overly sensitive, all I have to say is at one point I couldn't get out of my house because my car was stuck in, in the snow. I, I, um, I had no power. <laughs> um, my, my house was slowly becoming a frigid <laughs> icebox. Um, I had no food because uh, the, the grocery stores had been completely bought out. And normally I get food through Amazon Fresh anyway, and that had stopped, obviously. Um, so, you know, I just want to say I almost died, essentially. <laughs> but, but, but I, you know, people who complain about that, I just, I just have to say go to hell. Yeah, so I got a very funny message from a friend of mine in Utah. Like, you know, it's like, send me a picture, ha ha ha. And then his picture looks exactly the same, but I can tell he's got studded tires and his, you know, car is one of those push the snow out of the way grills on them. And I'm trying to explain that in a city of 450,000 people just in the central city, a city on seven hills. So if you've never been here, picture San Francisco. There are six snowplows. There was this map that went out from like Washington Transit that was like the eight main streets that were being plowed in Seattle. And it was kind of like a survival strategy. (laughs) If you can make it to one of those streets, maybe you can make it to where you're going. But chances are pretty good you could not make it off of your side street, which in Seattle are all basically single lane roads because everybody parks on both sides so um you really couldn't get through anyways and yeah my- yeah on, on my street there was a sign that someone put up because they did plow like one of the random streets in my neighborhood and and someone put up a giant sign that said thank you plow plowers <laughs> with with all these hearts on it and stuff it was like thank you for plowing our street yeah we're free so my Business is on Rainier Avenue, which was plowed, but right the side street next to me is, it doesn't look steep in the beginning, but it gets very steep. And all week long, I was listening to people slide, like try to get up it and then slide off it. And in classic Seattle fashion, some good Samaritan had put an orange cone with a sign that said, don't drive here, which of course people took as some kind of challenge. (laughs) We're like trying to drive on it anyways. Um, yeah, it, it's, you know, it's funny, like, and what we know how to deal with here that other people can't handle. Um, it's very funny when you transplant a lot of people and it might be safe for you to drive in this city, but you're going to be up against a lot of people who aren't safe to drive. That was the other thing I was trying to explain to my transplant clients. Like you may know how to drive in this, 
but 90% of the people on the road do not. And that makes it very, very dangerous. Yeah. And even if you do have a four wheel drive, very few people have snow tires, as you're pointing out. Um, and very few people have chains. And if they do like myself, it's impossible to like get them on. Um, and, so have uh, you heard of this thing called tire socks? No, but I'm intrigued. Okay, so I guess this is to save you the snow chain problem is there's this new thing that I haven't seen yet called tire socks, which you somehow, you know, in the pictures, you easily slip over your tire. I'm curious if they're going to sell out as um, people are like, <laughs> do not want that to happen again. Okay, I'm looking at images, tire s- snow socks for tires. Yes. I mean... Yeah, they're they're fabric. How would that work? Or are the chains inside the sock? I don't know, but it was recommended to me. Yeah, all I know is now I'm looking at a lot of alternative to snow tires, and <laughs> and man, do they look easier? Uh, I hope they are, and I'm going to buy them right away because <laughs> if you have chains on, like no problem, right? Like right. If you get chains on, it's not like you're you're good. Uh, but trying to get them on, especially like when your snows are or when your tires are halfway buried in snow themselves, you know, it was really, I'm going to add that to my, to my buy list on Amazon and then they won't get delivered because there's too much snow. Right. Well, and then also like I know the bare basics, you know, salt and shovel, but the entire South end was out of salt. I mean, rumor has it that they were like fistfights in West Seattle. (laughs) It's like, you know, the signs were up, like only take one bag of salt and people were taking multiple bags kind of like in a screw you thing. So some of it is the supplies that everybody relates to that make this doable. We just plain ran out and didn't have access to, which made it that much crazier. Right. Because if you're in Utah or Minnesota, the Home Depots there understand the regular rate of selling that sort of thing. In Seattle, in Home Depot, they could go for three years without selling a single bag of that stuff because we will go for three years without without any significant snow. You know, we'll go like like I remember. There's like I don't know five year period there where there was like one or two days where it kind of snowed and then it would melt or it wouldn't even stick to the roads. You would just see snow and it would pile up on your lawn, but it wouldn't do anything to the roads. And so that's another factor. So all I'm saying is like Seattle people, you know, we're not the wimps that everyone thinks that we are. Yeah, we, we definitely made it. There was one more thing that I was thinking, let me see if I can remember what it was. Oh, the other thing, snow plows, which no one here has. I don't know a single person that owns a snow plow, but every time I see them being used, I see people opening their garages, which have a smooth grade to the street and wheeling out their snowplow. I don't know anyone with a house like that in Seattle. That kind of like perfectly sloped driveway that goes to an even street. Right. That, like, so even if you did have a snowplow here, God knows where you put it, but you'd have to like lug it down to the street, like from your basement or you know, up from your house that's up two flights of stairs. Like it's just, um, this city is very unique in how it's built. And it's right, also- so what kind of snow plow are you talking about? You're talking about one that attaches to your car or one that you use by hand? The hand ones that look like lawnmowers, but they're for snow. Oh, that kind of snow plow. I see. Like right. the teeny tiny ones. Like the one. So my friend was asking me like, why don't you just get the snow plow out? And I was like, I don't know 
a single person here that owns their own personal snowplow. Yeah. Nor did I hear uh, anyone. Like, I, I would be fascinated to see if anyone in Seattle owned a snowplow. Probably now everyone will own a snowplow. But, yeah, we just do not have that kind of stuff. Yeah. I didn't even, it, until you mentioned it, it wouldn't have even occurred to me that that existed. But, yeah, I think I've seen pictures of such a thing. <laughs> It's like a mystery. There yeah. are these things that do exist. Yeah. Plus it's like, what good would that do you if you can't, you know, would you like use that on your, all the side streets? Plus the other thing that people don't, unless you're really aware of this sort of thing is like in Seattle, the snow is it, when it snows, it's just cold enough to snow, but warm enough for the snow to occasionally kind of melt and then cold enough for it to quickly turn into ice. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just like ice, like an ice rink. It's like chunks. Terrifying. Of, yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like driving on an off, it's like off-roading in your car. You know, right. it's, like, bla- it's what other people know as black ice, like terrifying people get severely injured. Yeah. Death. In fact, in fact, today I was supposed to do a podcast with the crisis line manager, you know, the, the main Seattle crisis line. Mm-hmm. And she just emailed me and said that she can't do it because her husband slipped on black ice and like cracked his head open or something. Uh, well, and somebody died. A UW student died. Because they slipped? On black ice. Yeah. It yeah. happened. So the the day after the few first cute little snow, I was so proud of myself. We got the whole business cleared out. And I got the walkway cleared out. And of course, there's no sand or kitty litter or salt in all of Seattle. So I just have to hope that the sidewalk outside my office stays dry enough. So I come back the next day and there's like two inches of solid black ice. And I'm like MacGyvering in my office. Like, what am I going to do? All I have is like a regular wall hammer. So I'm busting up the black ice with the the hammer and the, you know, the crowbar part because I'm so terrified that some client is going to slip and smack their head on the stairs. Well, that was pretty smart. I don't know if I would have thought of that. That's pretty smart. Well, it's that Capricorn thing, you know, <laughs> like how to solve this problem. So then I look up the street and I notice the drain that's always draining off this mid-century flat building is kind of draining onto the sidewalk. So I temporarily moved that into a snowbank uh, because that must be the reason that this black ice kind of developed out of nowhere. And then within 24 hours, it was announced that a student at the University of Washington died just walking around. And I was like, oh, that's why I did that. (laughs) That's why I had to clear that black ice because stuff like that happens here. Like, you know, people don't know how to, they don't have the right shoes or they don't know how to walk on it. And, um, you know, you don't, really see it because it's black and then yeah it's no joke yeah i was walking around last night and suddenly i almost fell and i was like whoa it's so slick here even though it, it didn't look like it would be slick you know i mean and it was slick slick and so i don't know how you're supposed to walk on that stuff you're, su- you're supposed to walk like a penguin what does that and mean like you're supposed to waddle and you're supposed to put your center of gravity over your feet as opposed to like, you know, the keep on trucking guy. He's all like lean. Like striding. Yes. Yeah. Timely, timely example you gave there. <laughs> um, you got to lean forward and waddle. 
And since I'm the world's slowest walker, anyways, I've been just fine. Are you? Yes. I am a slow, slow walker. Why? You think being <laughs> from the from New York and whatnot, you'd be I know. Fine. My New York friends actually yell at me because I'm such a slow walker. Um, I don't know why I'm such a slow walker. I'm just not in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, let's talk about some psychology stuff. What do you say? Okay. I'm done with snow apocalypse. And thank you for processing with me because, man, that was a lot. Yeah. I don't feel like I've really processed it with anybody um, to this extent. So, yeah, this feels good. Uh, and I'm also just another side note about the snow. Uh, given climate change, I'm worried that this is going to happen right, again, even this winter, right? Because, you know, we're beginning of or mid-February, like it's not unheard of to have snow in, in the end of February or March or something. So it's like, well, what else are we going to be dealing with here? Well, it's on the forecast for next week. It, it doesn't look like it's warm enough during, like it's cold enough during the day, but it's cold enough at night. Yeah. Um, and it makes me want to get like a generator or something because mm-hmm. just in case, I mean, how, do this, how does that work? You just need gas and you just run that thing. And it, make sure it's in your garage and not in the body of your house so you'll die of auto asphyxiation yeah yeah uh, that's just, a good tip <laughs> just trying to save you save a life really <laughs> uh okay so therapy client interested in psychology so this is patron jesse she writes in i'm wondering about therapy clients who find themselves thinking about careers as therapists i have tons of questions about this I'm still at a point where specific stressors lead to dissociation and depersonalization. Mm -hmm. Am I acceptably mentally healthy to be a therapist or even to think about studying that? My interest feels sincere, but am I wrong? Thoughts, Rebecca? Well, uh, many people come to the counseling arts uh, in all levels of uh, mental stability. Um, So I might ask, if I were them, I might ask their therapist if they're currently in therapy, if their therapist thinks they're ready. Um, you know, our first order of business is to do no harm. So if there's a chance you'll dissociate when you're working with somebody, I don't think that's a great idea. Um, but I've worked with all kinds of chronically mentally ill students. <laughs> um, some of them are great therapists because they know what it's like to go through the process and some people really crack under the stress of graduate school. Um, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but there's been a couple of suicide attempts of students while I was working with them. So, okay. And I had a student have a psychotic break. If you remember that one, I think I do. I mean, I've, I've certainly remember my own students having situations like that for sure, but care to share. Uh, I don't know how much I can share. Right. Um, but I mean, just, just in general, like you had a student who attempted suicide while they were your advisee or your student at the time. Yeah. 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 A, a serious, a serious attempt. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a policy of what happens next. And, you know, they are, they need to take a leave of absence and they were so upset. It was kind of heartbreaking. Like, you know, they had had the attempt and then they were like, I'm all better now. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't work like that. Like, you don't just get to come right back to school. Um, 
but I just remember they were like just devastated that um, I guess they just didn't realize that it would, you know, impact a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and, plus so, it, and it's not like to punish them. It's just no. like a, a good idea for them. You know, there's no reason to race to the finish line. Right. It's like, take a break, you know, get, get your ducks in a row, get some support, get some things set up. Um, we're here for you still. And, uh, you know, let's, let's take a breather here. It's not, it's not, let's not rush back into something that might actually cause you additional stress and cause you to, to want to, um, attempt again, you know? So, yeah. Um, it's interesting. I have had speakers come in from, uh, different inpatient settings and they have recognized former inpatient clients among the student body and, you know, just wanted to talk with me afterwards about how strange that was. And this, no one in that room had uh, disclosed that they had been an inpatient. So, you know, we know that this happens, um, but just uh, going to graduate school, you need a lot of support. And it is a very stressful situation. Um, you know, bare basics. You need to stay on your meds. You need to stay in therapy. Uh, you need to tell the folks around you that um, they need to let you know if they think that you're decompensating and you promise you'll listen. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with everything you're saying. The, the only thing I'll add is just a nuance that they, I hear this from people sometimes. They're like, well, I'm going to therapy. I have problems and I have this desire to become a therapist, but do I have the right to become a therapist? Do you, or is it, is it unethical for me to enter the field if I have these diagnoses? And, and as you pointed out, a lot of people do. In some ways, it can be a strength because you understand the system, you understand the diagnosis, you can treat people with these issues in a much more effective way, potentially. Um, the other thing is, is, I don't know a single graduate school student that doesn't qualify for a DSM diagnosis. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, panic, PTSD, or hasn't in, in recent history, you know, PTSD, dissociation, depression, personality disorders, um, you know, sexual issues. Uh, they're, they're just, it's, you know, the statistics are that a third of people in the United States and around the world qualify for a DSM diagnosis at any given time. So right there, you should just be like, well, a third of, so therefore a third of graduate school students are likely given the statistics to suffer from, from something and 50% will have qualified at some point in their life. Personally, I think that's an underestimation. I think that um, given the, you have the adjustment disorders um, I think PTSD is much more prevalent than people realize. Um, ADHD, this kind of thing. I, I would, I would take a guess and say that um, if I, if you gave me time to, you know, legitimately assess every single student in our university, I would find that ninety percent of them qualified for a DSM diagnosis of some kind, and um, especially when you include personality disorders, right? But um, so there's that now. Having said what you said, it's like there are some disorders that will actually make it, will actually impact, you know, if, if you suffer from panic disorder, for example, it's not likely to impact your work with clients, especially if you know your triggers and you're getting treated. But if you have dissociation, PTSD, and you're treating other clients, you have dissociation, PTSD, and trauma, then 
um, you might be impacted by that. It might affect your ability to stay present with the client. And that's definitely something to look at for sure. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can't become a therapist though. And plenty of therapists have a history or current dissociative symptoms. You know, it's not, not unheard of for sure. Um, so, um, so the, the general thing I would say is as long as you do your due diligence to make sure that you tell everyone around you what's going on and that you work on it, then I say, if you want to become a therapist, then you absolutely deserve to pursue that career path. Um, and there's nothing inherent about having a, a dissociative disorder that makes it so that you can't become a therapist. Um, then she asks, what would my therapist think? I'm weirdly nervous at the idea of mentioning this. I get nervous at the idea that my therapist would think that I am changing myself to be more like them. Thoughts, mm -hmm. Rebecca? I mean, that's a common thing is that people that are in therapy realize, wow, this has really worked for me. I really want to do this work. I would just let you know that the type of client you are is probably not going to be the type of client that you meet earlier in your career. I would say that's the biggest kind of struggle. I've noticed people who go into therapy who go into the counseling profession for this reason is they're kind of waiting for that client that they can be that magic therapist for the way that they've found their own therapist. Um, and so I just try and, I don't know, dissuade people as much as I can from that fantasy. Right. So the agreed and yeah, the notion uh, that, so there's this, there's this cultural notion out there that there are therapists, you know, mental health clinicians, psychologists, psychiatrists, and then you have the crazy people and then you have normal people. Like you have these three groups of people, right? You have the crazies, you have the normals and you have the mental health people. I'm here to tell you. It's all one big pot. Everyone is crazy. Quote unquote. Everyone has the capability to be a mental health clinician and help other people. And everyone is normal. So, uh, just because you're in therapy, it, it's not like you're crossing a line because all therapists should be in therapy. So by definition, every therapist is quote unquote crazy enough to be in therapy. Um, the other thing is, is that you, you know, if you went to a physician, say, you know, you broke your arm and you go to the physician and they put a cast on and as you're going through the process of treatment, you're inspired to become a physician. You wouldn't look at that person and say their desire to become a physician is somehow invalid. Uh, it's the same about becoming a therapist. Most therapists, I hope, honestly, have been in therapy prior to their decision to become a therapist. Anyone who just decides to become a therapist having never been to therapy themselves, I actually, I, I actually am, I question their understanding of what they're getting into. To, to just have watched TV depictions or movie depictions <laughs> about therapy and like, yep, that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I really wonder. In fact, I've seen just anecdotally some people who enter the field having never been to therapy themselves. They're often younger people. And m some of them actually end up dropping out because yeah, they're incredibly disappointed because the actual work is not at all what they imagined it would be. That's a question I often ask in supervision is what did you imagine the work was going to be like and what is it actually like? Interesting. Because what kind of answers do you get to that? I mean, a lot of people had these kind of fantasies, like I would, quote, really be helping somebody. Um, I would, you know, I would see change in the office. 
And I'm like, oh, yeah, no. (laughs) You know, you may never see change with this client. Um, And that is an important part of the work, that you're sitting with people who might be pre-contemplative to change, especially earlier in, in your career. And it's hard to tolerate that if you thought that, like, I don't know, some kind of magic was going to happen in your office. Um, yeah, so I, I feel right. like I do a lot of lowering of expectations for people. Yeah, it's really disappointing. And I get it to a lot of novice therapists because the kind of clients that they inherently get in the beginning of their career, the first few years of their career, are this are often the sort of clients, as you say, are pre-contemplative, meaning that they aren't actually interested in changing. They're often forced into therapy or they're in therapy for some other kind of reason. And they're not actually asking the therapist for help. And the th- therapist, the, the young novice therapist, feels this compulsion to somehow make therapy useful for someone who actually doesn't even want to be there. And later in our career, we end up getting clients who come to therapy knowing what therapy is, like us as a therapist, come with, you know, notepads of things they want to talk about. And, and it's, and we as therapists just sit back and, and help, you know, we're, we're in the zone. They're, they're not pre-contemplative. They're, they're, they know they have a contemplative. Yeah. Or they're actioning (laughs) or they're maintaining. And so it's, it's a, it's really unfair to a lot of novice therapists that they have to go through that. We've all been through it. You know, you and I both went through phases of our career like that. So, so I get that. Um, yeah. Well, let's take a break. And when we get back, let's talk about spoiled children. What do you say? Ooh, I don't have one of those. All right. We're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, do so now. Go to patreon.com. Also, if you have trouble with the premium feed, once you become a patron, email me at contact.psychologyinseattle.com. I can help you with that. Also, buy Rebecca's books on art therapy. She has an art therapy workbook and called Square the Circle, mm-hmm. available on Amazon. And she has another art therapy workbook called, what is it called again? Attunement. Uh, it's, a, it's a mandala coloring book. And any minute now, my third book is going to come out. It's uh, Vicarious Trauma Illustrated. It's kind of a nightmarish <laughs> nighttime book. <laughs> or It's a series of watercolor images explaining vicarious trauma in a very visual way. Mainly for clinicians? Mainly for clinicians, but I also think it's going to work across, you know, I think teachers, nurses... Yeah. Clergy, police folks, first responders, I think it's going to be handy to a lot of people. And it's a passive thing? Like they they read it? it? Yeah, they read it. Um, uh, I've also, what's funny is a lot of people quote the book, um, The Body Holds the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. But what I've learned is a lot of people haven't actually read it. They're all just like quoting each other the same quotes. Um, and so I've, I've watercolored some of his primary concepts and people are really excited by that. So, um, anyways, I can't wait. It's just, I'm in the, that frustrating pre-production phase, um, where you're just kind of stuck waiting for things to move forward. We're also, uh, we're meeting some goals on Patreon. So we're starting to give out scholarships now. Did you know about Ooh, this? No, tell me all about it. 
Yeah, we've accepted applications to give That's out a so two awesome. a $2,000 scholarship to a, a student who is uh, training to be in the mental health field and who exhibits that they have made a difference in the world, they're going to make a difference and that they need the money actually to, you know, get them through graduate school. And I've been reading the essays and um it's it makes me cry to read them. Oh. It's um it's an interesting thing because, you know, I've, I've read a lot of scholarship essays before at Antioch. Um, mm-hmm. Were you ever on that committee, the scholarship committee? I was, I was never on that committee. Yeah. And it, when I read those essays, certainly some of them were moving, but there's something different about a scholarship essay to me, right? Like okay. these people are writing to me and I'm the one who makes the choice about who gets this money. You know, there, you know, I'm also involving our team here, but, but it, you know, it's, it's at Antioch, it was like a, it was a collection of five to 10 different people at the university who made these choices. And I just rated them. And in the end, they sort of compiled all the ratings. But in this one, it's like, if, if, if I don't give it to this person, you know, if I give it to this person, I can't give it to this other person. And it, and, and also these people are talking about stories about their work or their personal lives that are um, heartbreaking. And, uh, it's a, I didn't expect that to happen. I expected it to be kind of a dry process where I just sort of the way it was at Antioch, but it's, it's, it's really quite personal. Also, if we meet our next Patreon goal, which if you are thinking about becoming a patron, you would contribute to us meeting that next goal and in which we're going to, uh, offer another scholarship of $2,500 to, to somebody. That's awesome. Yeah. I, it occurred to me, you know, one night I was like, what should be the next Patreon goal? And, you know, we've given money to, um, to Plymouth housing, which gives, you know, helps people that are homeless. We've given money to the Trevor project, which helps young um, LGBTQ folks. Uh, We've given money to camp 10 trees um, and we've given money to pet finder foundation. And so these are all wonderful charities that I felt, you know, very good about, um, you know, contributing towards. Um, but, you know, you're contributing a large, to a large pool of money. You know, it, it's not like a, it feels good for sure. But in this instance, I'll be, you know, mailing a check for $2,000 to so one, awesome. one person, <laughs> you know. And, you know, there's, there's no fees, there's no commission, there's no administrative fee. You know, it just goes straight to that individual and they will be able, you know, there, there's some people who are having trouble paying their bills right now as they're, mm-hmm. as they're going through graduate school for one reason or another. And this money will help them to survive, you know, in the next few months. And so it's, um, it's pretty interesting to, to go through that. So if you're thinking about becoming a patron, do so now. That's the sort of thing that you will be contributing to. Let's talk about spoiled children. This person writes in and says, I was wondering if you could do an episode about the psychology of spoiled children, like rarely being told no, always having their way, having an abundance of toys, etc. Can being a spoil can being can being spoiled as a child lead to personality disorders? What do you think, Rebecca? That's an interesting question. I don't know if it's a personality disorder but you can have trouble connecting to other people later in life because your expectations of what humans do for one another 
cannot be replicated outside your family of origin. Right. So you expect the world to to shower love on you, and guess what? <laughs> like, the world doesn't really care about you that much. Um, have, you, have you ever run into that in an adult? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, there's things. I grew up, uh, for a while, I lived in San Diego um, in the 80s with some of the most spoiled people I've ever met. and these Like, people like were, rich people? Like rich people. Like people that were so rich, they got one car when they turned 16 and they got another car when they turned 18. Yeah. And, uh, you know, these people didn't understand how the world worked and um, they expected everyone to serve them. And it was damaging for me just to be around, like just in terms of, you know, being expected to kind of socially connect to these people that were so focused on wealth having meaning. Um, right. And, and is that a personality trait or is it something that is contextual that can quickly be unlearned through experience in their adult life? Uh, I think it depends on the person. I mean, this is all a really great kind of segue. Maybe not. Did you watch the Andrew Kanan movie? No. Uh, the murder of Versace? Um, uh, no, it's on my list though. I heard it's really good. Okay. So we'll have to have a whole nother podcast after you watch it, but um, so just bare basics. Uh, so I was in San Diego at the same time as him and we are like two people apart. I knew people that knew him. Um, but one of the crazy parts about his story is that his father always told him that he was extremely special. Um, you know, clearly he had underlying mental health issues um, on top of what that was going on. But a lot of the film is, about how much his father did to tell him he was special and then how frustrated he became as an adult when that appeared not to be the case. Um, yeah. Interesting. So my thoughts about spoiled children are, you know, identical to yours. The only thing I would say in addition to it is that it, I think to me, we can kind of break it up into two types of spoiling. We have, and the writer kind of refers to this. You have rarely being told no, always having their way. That's sort of one type of spoil where it's sort of a emotional spoiling of a, of a child, a, you know, lack of limits, lack of discipline, this kind of thing. And then the other kind of spoiling is having an abundance of toys, which is a whole different, in my mind, different type of, of spoiling. They can often be associated, I'm guessing, but not necessarily. Um, so these two different types, I think could have different effects. Um, like children who get too many material items, whatever sort of gauge we say that is too many, you know, like he's so spoiled, his parents get him whatever he wants. Or when you're looking at those rich kids in San Diego, you're just like, they get whatever they want. And there's a certain uh, materialism and privilege that emerges from that lifestyle that is not a healthy way to look at the world. You, you know, you don't want your kids to think of themselves as better than poor people. For example, you don't want them to expect that things just show up at their door uh, without any hard work and without any merit upon earning such a thing. It's not a good uh, message you want to give kids. You want them to 
earn things. You want them to get things on merit. You also want them to not consider themselves any better than anybody else, you know, but that's a subtle thing. You know, it's, you could, as a parent, absolutely give your kid a car when they're 16 and 18 and also teach them important values about earning things and hard work and privilege and the plight of other people. You know, like if you're a parent and you gave your kids a car at 16, you could also have the kid volunteer and um, reward them for being a good human being. So it's, it's not as simple as like, um, you know, don't do this or do that in my experience. Um, in my experience, this kind of materialism spoiling, material spoiling uh, doesn't usually result in a personality problem, but it does result in some, as you were talking about, some destructive notions that sort of rattle around in people's heads. But here's the thing, uh, including materialism and privilege. But here's the thing, like, every American is in this category compared right. to... Right, this is now the standard. I mean, very few children are surrounded by material possessions at this point. Right. Most American kids, even I would say lower middle class kids, have a have a phone, have an iPad, have a computer, have uh, t- you know ten pairs of shoes, have um, you know lot you know have Netflix accounts and blah blah blah. You know, when we were kids, even middle class kids, it was kind of hard to go to a movie. Like you couldn't even necessarily go to a movie. Um, the house had one TV, and if you had you were in a family of six people like I was like, I only had one vote on what we watched on TV, you know? (laughs) So I I might not have even been able to have watched the TV shows I wanted to watch. In fact, I remember, you know, the one time of the week was um, uh, Sunday morning cartoons, right? Like the, the one time where on, on broadcast TV, which was the only thing you could watch is Saturday morning or Sunday morning. It was one of the weekend mornings where they, okay. They showed, they showed so long ago, I forget, right? They would show cartoons geared towards kids. And we're talking like old reruns, like Bugs Bunny from the 40s, you know what I mean? In blackface and stuff, you know? And, but that was all that we had. And it was like this glorious moment. You know, you'd wake up early Saturday, you'd run over. No one's up yet. You watch the TV. But, you know, as soon as my family woke up and got things going, my dad would turn on golf. And that, that was it. <laughs> you know, that's it for me. No, no more cartoons for me. And so today, you know, that's another element that I, you know, compared to when when we were kids, I I don't necessarily label it as spoiled, but I label it as like, geez, kids today have a lot of different things. So especially that instant satisfaction, like, so to watch my son immediately have access to the song that he wants to hear, as opposed to like having to wait for hours by the radio. And it's not, you know, there's no value judgment there. It's just. I wonder how this will impact his psyche um, that when you kind of think you want something, you just have access to it. It's such a different experience. Right. So we can look at that and say like, well, those people are spoiled compared to us, but you know, 50 years before us, they would, they would look at our lifestyle and say that we were completely spoiled because we weren't getting polio or measles or having to fight in wars at the age of 17 or, you know, uh, not having to do manual labor on the farm at the age of 12, you know, there's, it's all relative. And so this notion of one, once, you know, you and I looking at the rich San Diego kids and saying they're spoiled, it's like, we're spoiled, you know? So it's, it's all relative. And, and I think that it is a problem because 
um, our society as a whole, Americans, are getting increasingly materialistic as the years go by. We're not actually getting less materialist. We're getting worse as time goes on, meaning that we want to solve our problems through material items whenever there's a problem in our lives. And I'm included in this, by the way. I can't escape the, you know, the internalization of our societal norms. When we have problems, we seek material goods to solve those problems, like a snowplow, for example. Um, Where is my snowplow? Yeah. Um, rather than looking towards other kinds of things. Not that snowplows are bad, but the point is, is that there are other ways of solving our problems. Like, um, and obviously, snow is not a good example because it's hard to deal with that. But, but um, when I'm unhappy or when I feel unsafe about my job or when I feel... Um, disconnected from other human beings. Oh, well, I'll buy a subscription to this or I'll buy a, um, like, or when you feel like you need to lose weight, well, I need to buy a thing. So I, cause buying something helps me to lose weight. Um, you know, if that's all you ever do, that might be missing the, the mark. And, um, and also just the amount of waste that we create in our society and pollution based on our just constant need to be buying more and more things. So there's problems for sure, but I wouldn't. So that's what I say about that. The other kind of spoiling is when they're not disciplined. You know, like you look at kids at a restaurant and you're just like, those kids are out of control. Their parents are spoiling them. You know what I mean? And this relates to different parenting styles The the literature, we have four different, you know, the four different parenting styles. No. So you, you have a, I should. <laughs> I wonder which one I'm doing. Well, when, I'll, I'll pipe up when one sounds familiar. When you hear them, you'll recognize them. Like you have authoritative. You've heard. Oh of yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do know these. So, so these are. So we have four different. Um, we have two different axes. One is is control, and one is affection. So when you have high control, high affection, and control meaning like good kinds of control, not horrible kinds of control. If you have, you know, a good level of control of the kids, good level of discipline and a good and a high level of affection, this is what we call authoritative parenting, which is the optimal parenting style. Then we have uh, high control, low affection, and this is authoritarian. So this is associated with cold parents who are very discipline oriented, maybe even abusive, depending on the level. And that's authoritarian. Then you have low control, high affection, and this is permissive parenting. So these parents are very loving to their kids and warm, but they have no boundaries, no limits. Um, and this is what we call permissive. And then we have disengaged parenting where there's low control, low affection. These parents are basically just kind of checked out. So really when we're talking about children who are not being disciplined, we're talking about either permissive parenting or disengaged parenting. And obviously, disengaged parenting, we would understand that that would be a problem for kids to, you know, basically just not be present. Often, they're either massively depressed, massively stressed out, or drug addicted. And these parents, um, or they have some massive attachment injury themselves from their, from their childhood, the parents do. And so, you have parents who are checked out. They're like, basically, their message to the kids is just go away from me, get away. Like, don't, don't bother me. They might even say things like, I wish you were never born, you know, that kind of stuff. They make the children feel unwanted. The children are unsupervised. And so in this environment of a very low control, low affection, the child undoubtedly will suffer attachment problems because 
there's there's not enough relationship there to make the child feel like they can depend on other people uh, or and develop the empathy that they need to actually function in the world. So there's so that kind of spoiling absolutely does create lots of problem. But when you get to permissive parenting where you actually do have high affection which which is good but low control it kind of depends on how bad it is because really the point is, and you you talked about this earlier is how attuned you are to your chip, to your children. So, you know, there's a wide range after, you know, I'm a, I'm a, it's so weird when I think about this, but I'm a professional advice giver to parents, you know, as a family therapist, um, just by the nature of my job, I've talked professionally with a lot of parents about how to parent because they come to me like my kids out of control what do I do and over time I've just problem solved with parents about like what to do and one of the things that I've learned through trial and error is that there's a pretty wide range of parenting approaches that work with kids and there's not one way to parent a kid and so you can have fairly permissive parents who don't actually have a lot of control but as long as you have a lot of affection and you're attuned to your kid the the low um, the low control permissive style of parenting might create a certain kind of person you know but it's not necessarily going to create someone who can't adjust to situations later in life you know because um, because there's some pros to being a little permissive which depending on the way you're doing it the kid could grow up with this notion of like well if I don't follow if I don't have an internal sense of rules and limits like I'm going to have negative things happen to me in my life. You know what I mean? So, so that's what I'll say about that. Having said that you absolutely with permissive parenting can create a monster. You know, if you give them like in the example you gave with the Versace situation kind of sounds like, so in that situation, I suspect that the parent was showering the child with a lot of, of compliments and didn't maybe have a lot of discipline for the kid but also wasn't necessarily attuned to the kid and wasn't necessarily close emotionally to the child. Do you think that was true about the Versace situation? Um, so we're talking about Andrew Kunanen, just to be clear, we're not talking about Versace's childhood. Right. Um, uh, it appeared to be more that the dad uh, replaced the spouse with the parent, with, with the child. So that all of the affection that should, it was like kind of vaguely incestuous in some ways. Um, And that also, uh, right, there wasn't, the same expectations weren't put on that kid that were put on the other kids. Right. So special. Right. So that's not being attuned, you know, by implication, when you treat your child as a spouse, you're not attuned to the child's needs because the child doesn't want to be your spouse. The yeah. child, child wants to be a kid and the child, you know, has their own needs, which should really eclipse the parents' needs as the parents are interacting with the child. And so children in that, those situations will feel very put upon and have to suppress their own emotions and their own needs because they understand that in order to get love and attention, they have to do that in order to be essentially a spouse to their parent. and. Uh, that's not being attuned. So it's not the necessarily the issue of being spoiled or being told that they're awesome. It's the fact that the foundation of the relationship is a, de- is a denial of the child's needs and a pattern of parenting that isn't attuned to the, because the parent in that situation isn't actually paying attention to what the child needs. It's more about what the parent needs. So, so when we talk about spoiling 
children in our society, I often think we sort of simplify it to like, you shouldn't spoil your kid and I condemn you for spoiling your kid. But really the discourse should be more around attunement in my idea. I'm much more concerned with parents being attuned than I am about spoiling. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. I'm also, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how much disability plays into this. Sure. And that, um, yeah, I think of my own child and my friends who have kids that are even more uh, incapacitated than my child and how, you know, that place of trying to be so attuned to their child's needs because the world is so not connected to their kid, um, you know, that they just become incredibly accommodating. Um, And I can think of a lot of situations where people looked at me like, what on earth are you doing? And I'm thinking like, just trust me. Like this is, this is what needs for everything to function. This is what needs to happen right now. So that as a parent, it's really difficult because you are often, um, you know, people really notice your choices and maybe you would make choices that other people wouldn't make. Um, so I guess I'm also trying to add to this, give parents a break. It's a really hard job. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, you know, basically what I was trying to say in that when, whenever I hear judgment or talk about spoiling, I often hear shaming of parents. And that's why, you know, I found that there, there's a wide variety of styles of parenting, even among in, in the same family, like the, the dad might be very permissive and the mom might be very discipline oriented and that's fine. Like as long as we're working together and both people are within the realm of it, within the range of, of good attuned parenting, then we're probably okay. It's not like one thing has to be true. Um, mm-hmm. The main thing is being attuned to your child's needs, being um, noticing their emotional state, helping them out when they're distressed uh, because kids want to obey. I mean, that's the one thing that I've also really learned with working with a lot of parents is that um, obedient children are not obedient because of your discipline. They're obedient because they don't want to disappoint you. They're, they're obedient because they care about how you see them. You know, children are desperate for their parents' approval and their parents' good graces, you know. Um, and, and, and that's what's so fascinating about having a kid with ADHD because they literally don't care. <laughs> Like, <laughs> well, one, they might, they care, I would suspect, but, but they, it's hard for them to pay attention. Right, they don't have the impulse control. I mean, it's just fascinating to, I just say to some of my friends who are like, why did you just let that happen? Or I would have never let that happen in my house. And I have to say, you have a child that's way more compliant than my child. Right. And because, that. Yeah. The, the, the way I would phrase it, and of course you're the experts, you've seen it happen, you know, on a daily basis, um, for 14 years, 15, um, 15 years, um, is that when you have ADHD, your executive function is not as, uh, isn't firing as, um, strongly as it is in, or maybe in, ever, <laughs> or maybe ever. And when you see something that you want to do, you know, and everyone experiences this. It's like, I want to jump up on the couch and, and, and jump on the table. You know, that looks like something fun that I want to do. Um, other kids who don't have ADHD, it, there's this connection to their frontal prefrontal cortex where it checks in and says like, well, is this behavior, what's going to happen, you know, in the future, if I 
get on the couch and jump on the table. And it, you know, get, and the executive function checks in with different memory circuits and different emotional, you know, associations with things. And then quickly for many kids, this conclusion arrives, which is, well, based on my experience, if I get on the couch and jump on the table, even though I've never done that specific thing before, in all likelihood, things are going to be bad for me. It'll be, the things will be good for me because I like to do that and I think it will be fun, but I think things will be bad for me based on other experience because of X, Y, and Z, you know, namely my parents have yelled at me, you know, and been, and, and been disappointed to me, which I really don't like. I don't like it when my parents are disappointed in me. So they actually don't have the neuronal um, pathways that allow for such a check-in to to happen in a consistent way. And so they jump on the couch and they jump on the table and then the parent freaks the fuck out because they're like, how many fucking times have I told you to not jump on things? How, you know, and the now the kid is sitting there going, well, wow, you know, what's wrong with me? You know, like, this seems to happen a lot where I, you know, I, I have an impulse, I do something and then suddenly I'm in trouble, you know? And like, man, I must be a bad kid. There must, there must be something wrong with me. I must be an inherently uncaring, rebellious child. You know, there's sort of these conclusions of identity that children will make early in life. You know, I'm a fuck up or I'm stupid or um, whatever. And then that sort of further, depending on the situation, can sort of solidify an identity around that. And then, and then by the time they're 16, they're just like, fuck it, I don't care, you know, because most 16-year-olds are that way anyway. But particularly if you have a lifetime of just being constantly yelled at and being confused about, like, how come I can't stay out of trouble? Um, and then, you know, then bad things happen, you know. So as a parent, it's just like, but at the same time, you have to stop them from jumping on the couch and jumping on the table. So it's just like, how do you, how do you deal with that impulse? You know? And so sometimes you just let it go. Sometimes, well, you know, it doesn't, doesn't do consequences. Yeah. Cause, cause having a consequence isn't going to stop it. Right. Because consequences imply they'll remember next time or they'll have an editor in their prefrontal cortex that will check in with memories of discipline and stop them from doing something. And if they don't have that pathway or they're not on their meds to help them have that pathway, in that moment, because you don't want them on their meds all the time, then, you know, you just have to say, well, you know, that that's what's just going to happen right now. <laughs> and I'm just going to hope that they don't have that impulse again in the, in the near future. Is that, am I describing that accurately? I don't know. Yeah. I was, I mean, I wish you could follow me around and just continue to say that to me regularly, but it is fascinating what's happening now that he has grown so much. So he has grown six inches and put on 40 pounds in the last year, basically. I know that's crazy. You were talking about that. I don't know if it was on the podcast, but you said like in one month his feet grew like like two sizes, or he grew six well, inches, or so. what was it again? Well, every four months he was growing out of his shoes. So he went in one year. He went from size four men's to size ten and a half. That's insane. I mean, it's just been insane. It's like you can but, look at his feet and watch them growing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well. This is totally aside, but it's really amusing. Is that last Hanukkah holidays we all had the same size feet? We all got slippers, <laughs> and now this year I can continue to wear the slippers that he got last year, but we had to buy him new slippers. And it's this joke, you know, he keeps yelling at me like, "Here are my slippers!" But like, I mean, they barely fit on his toes at this point. Like, he just has these huge feet. 
So it's just been kind of fascinating to watch him interact with his environment. So he's one of those kids that always hangs on the door molding, you know, and as many times as I've said, don't do that, don't do that. He's always doing it. So recently he did it and the whole thing just ripped out of the wall. And, you know, like the molding, like it took out the plaster and like, and he's just holding it in his hands. And he's like, that's never happened before. And I'm like, yeah, because you're huge now. <laughs> like, the feedback that he's getting from the world is just so different because his physical impact on things is so different or like somehow i don't even know how he did this he somehow got his foot his now massive foot caught in a, a lamp cord and of course the lamp was glass and he brought the whole thing down and there's just glass everywhere. And there's just this way, I mean, that stuff happens so much in our life, like things shattering. And it's just my role. I have to just stay, I've chosen to just stay incredibly calm and we get the broom and we just clean it up. And he knows it's his job to clean it up. But I'm just thinking like, Oh my inside, I'm just exploding. Like how can this possibly be true? Right. Cause it, and- it, it, after a while, it starts feeling personal. Like how many times have I told you, blah, 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 right? It, as a parent, you know, we're all prone to that. It's just like, you're, you're choosing to ignore me. And certainly kids will do that sometimes for their own, you know, it's like, take out the garbage uh, later, take out the garbage. Uh, you know, there's clear moments where they're in that moment choosing to be a jerk to their parents. But with regards to like getting their foot caught in things and, um, you know, impulse control around certain things that you watch your kids do when they're ADHD. It's not a choice. It, you know, they just don't, it essentially is a disability depending on your association with what it, what a disability is. And to expect someone with a disability to not have the disability is unreasonable. Right. And it doesn't make it any, well, to me, I think it makes it emotionally better because you can sort of look at it and go like, well, you know, this is my life now. And, there's no secret parenting trick to erase this, you know, um, this is just how things are going to be. And, um, plenty of adults have ADHD and they have workarounds and they're fine, you know, and they Mm -hmm. broke a shit ton of lamps when they were kids. Have you started buying things that are less breakable? Uh, yeah, it does cross my mind or less expensive or things, you know, you just start to care about things less because you're like, mm, I'll probably get broke. <laughs> like, it's just like, you just, um, there's a level or, or you walk into different people's homes and you're like, mm, no one hears, <laughs> you know, you can just tell like certain parents are like, you know, you walk into someone's house and they have children and they still have white carpet and you're like, I don't know how they do that. Like there's just a level of, um, not caring. What about losing things? Oh yeah. Expensive like things too. Keys and iPads and he, and um, yeah. And then there's always doing the, the you've replaced it. You do the laundry and then it shows back up. Um, so like I can't tell you how many times I've done the laundry and like found keys. Any money I find is mine. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a lot of looking for things or having multiple things like those calculators that are really expensive that kids need now in math class. Oh yeah. Um, I, you know, we kind of did that condo thing and we were like cleaning up the whole house and we discovered we had three of them. Um, and I think it's just because, you know, when the, you need it and it's gone. That's funny. Um, what do you think of the condo thing? 
I like it to a limit. Um, it's been kind of fun. But what I like most about it is that um, you get to keep things. You know, it's not like have you used it in a year, then if you haven't, you have to get rid of it. Right. If you haven't used it, you can still keep it if it gives you joy. Right. But we did it at our house and it was pretty fascinating. Like, um, we just got rid of tons of stuff. And it was like, why am I keeping this? Did you like say goodbye to it as if it was a... I, 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 I did a little fast paced. I have to say after a while, did you actually say goodbye to anything? Did you ever, did you stop and maybe say, like the first thing? Like, Thank you for being in my life. I say goodbye to you. I, yeah. And then after that, I was like, whatever I said it once. <laughs> um, I will say if you read the book, there's a very funny passage about, um, don't give up things like your screwdriver. Like they may not actually give you joy, but are they actually useful and can they actually do a job that nothing else can do? Like a snowplow. Like a snowplow. Like right. I don't get any joy from looking at a snowplow. But it actually does a job. Don't get rid of those things. Although um, I could see getting joy from looking at a snowplow. I could, I could see that. Well, if it, if I would live, it would have given me a lot of joy recently. So, <laughs> hey, I got to go. Okay. Let's work. wrap up. Thanks for joining me. It's been, been fun. Awesome. It's been yeah, a while. It's been too long. Well, I, and I have more questions for you, so I'll have to save it for next time. And I've got exciting news. Um, so I am going to be flying down to Berkeley to present with somebody that I met through the podcast. About what? Art therapy? About um, creating safety for queer clients. Uh, she lives in Seoul, and I live in Seattle, and we're going to be co-presenting. She's flying in from Seoul. Yeah. Wow. And she contacted you from the podcast? Yeah. I have you to thank for this amazing opportunity and this dialogue that we've been having. Wow. Um, Yeah. So if people want to, can people join you at Berkeley? Yeah. So we'll be at the International Expressive Arts Therapy Conference uh, at the Berkeley Marina. We'll be presenting on Friday, March 1st at around three o'clock. 2019, depending on when you're listening. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But when I tell people the whole story, because I think people younger than us, this stuff happens. Like they meet people on podcasts and they become friends. Um, But in my generation, I'm like talking about going to Mars. You know, people are like, what? Um, So anyways, it's super cool. And the topic is super cool. And they've given us permission to record it. Um, so I can't wait to come back on and talk about our experience. Yeah, I can't wait either. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself. Get a snowplow and some <laughs> socks for your tires because... Because you you need to go to work. That's why. You need to what? You need to go to work. As, you need James, to go to Brown, work. as James Brown says, if you don't work, you don't eat. <laughs> like We all need to go back to work. <laughs>